thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists. And this week, we're going in search of the reason that a crowd turns into a riot. We'll be talking to Clifford Stott from the University of Liverpool, who works on football hooliganism, and also John Drury from the University of Sussex. And one of the things we'll be looking at is the best way to get people out of a dangerous situation and evacuated to safety. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. And to take a completely different flight of fancy, Gay Gibson's here from the University of Greenwich, and she works on how it is that a male mosquito can spot a female mosquito, and vice versa. Cat. Always seems to be me. They're just always trying to mate with me. Mm, I hate them. Anyway, we're going to be finding out uh, the scientific way not to forget those email attachments. <laughs> Look of recognition around everyone here. Yeah, how many times you've sent that big email to loads of people at work? Find and close the attachment. Oh no, sorry everyone. Anyway, we're, so scientists have been on the case with that. Scientists have also been measuring happiness. So which countries around the world are the happiest? Which are the most miserable? Here's a, a quick teaser for you. Um, are we happier or less happy than France here in the UK? What do you reckon? I reckon the French are happier than we are. I reckon, Gay, what do you think? Could be, could be. I reckon they're even happier. So I think the French are happier than the English. Because right? they have sun, they have good food. The people that are professionally a... miserable are the Germans, aren't uh-huh. they? <laughs> um, no, apparently not, no. We are actually more cheerful than France and uh, less cheerful than Germany. But we'll be bringing you full news of that later. And also, um, researchers have come up with a way to prevent doctors leaving things inside patients when they operate. Things like scalpels, swabs, golf clubs, nurses. And also some news about oil-eating bugs, which could be a way to clear up oil slicks in the future. And uh, also coming up, Kitchen Science. Now, we want your full participation in this week's Kitchen Science. It is amazing. You'll be gobsmacked when you try this. What you'll need is a shelf from your oven, hopefully one that's clean and not hot. So try and choose uh, a shelf that's not been cooked on for a little while. You'll need two bits of string to connect onto that oven shelf two fingers preferably your own and yourself you'll also need a wooden spoon or something similar to hit your oven shelf with you will be amazed and we'll be joining derek who is out there at Hinchingbrook school with dave and a couple of assistants this evening to do this experiment so go and grab those things if you have the chance the naked scientist podcast powered by uk fast the uk's best hosting provider on the web at ukfast.net now, at the beginning of last week's show, I told you that for the teaser, we wanted to know what is the gas that comes out of your kettle when you add some acid to it, when you've got a furred up element and it fizzes. The answer was, of course, carbon dioxide. And this week, we want to know what is that substance that makes plants look green and enables them to soak up sunlight and carbon dioxide to make their food and oxygen? We've got a ton of amazing prizes. Petro is uh, scraping his prize barrel as we speak. Yep, scraping the prize barrel, We've got loads of prizes to give away. And also, because we're talking about crowd behaviour and things like that, 
We've been given a book by Kate Fox, who's at the Social Issues Research Centre in Oxford, and she's written a book called Watching the English. It's the hidden rules of English behaviour. So if you've wanted to know where do we get our cueing instinct from, uh, where do we get our nice cut glass accents from, how do we behave, what do we get up to in the pub, this is the book for you. So um, get phoning in for our quiz, for our teaser, what's that green substance in plants, um, any questions you've got on crowds or even on mosquitoes, get phoning in 08459 25 2000, text us 07786 20 and there's always the email chris at nakedscientist.com. Now talking of emails, how often has it happened to you that you've sent an email saying see the attached and then you get one back about 10 days later from someone saying we didn't attach it. Have you done that? I know I've <laughs> yes, lots of times. Well, the time. There's a, a couple of people over in America who are obviously had, having this problem and uh, Fernando Pereira and his research group at the University of Pennsylvania reckon they've now got the answer because they went to the, the now defunct US company Enron and they got 8,000 emails from that company which were in the public domain and they've written a computer program that scoured through those emails looking for the cardinal features of when an attachment should be connected to an email. So all the sort of giveaway clues of what you'd tend to write in an email when there was going to be an attachment on it. And they've now got that computer program, which can run at the same time as you're writing an email. It'll analyse your email, see if it thinks that there's an attachment that should be there that you've forgotten to add, and then it pops up a little notice saying... Uh, perhaps you should be adding an attachment here. And they did a little test to see if it was any good, and they found that 85% of the time it manages to pick up and warn people when they've forgotten to attach their attachment. Is it going to be one of those really annoying paper clips? Um, yes, I was just thinking <laughs> of that. Because uh, I, I actually got sent a very funny attachment this week, actually, um, and it, it said uh, it, had, it had a sort of version of that paperclip and and it was uh, someone beginning to write a letter on a microsoft product and it said uh dear all uh, i've decided to end my life because I, I can't carry on anymore and then the paperclip pops up and it says this looks like a suicide note would you like help with my <laughs> we should kill all paperclips anyway scientists at the university of leicester have been working on um the first ever world map of happiness Obviously, the most happy countries are those who don't have to deal with paperclips in their um, computer programs but anyway Adrian White, who's a, a social psychologist at Leicester, has been compiling the information from a load of studies. So he's looked at over 100 scientific studies of happiness that include surveys of 80,000 people worldwide. And he's come up with a map of happiness. Now, happiness is a very important thing to study. Um, a few months ago, David Cameron was all about, all new conservatives, new happiness or whatever. Um, and also, a recent BBC survey found that more than 80% of the population think that the government should focus on making us happy rather than making us wealthy. So it's not all money. They don't seem to do that, happy. though, do they? Well, they don't seem to do Gordon either. Gordon seems quite <laughs> hell-bent on making me less wealthy, actually, as far oh, as I can tell. Oh, but he probably wants to make you happy and give you a big cuddle something like that. Anyway, so they've come up with this, this map that you can actually find at the University of Leicester website, that's www.le.ac.uk. And um, what's, guess what the top most happy country in the world is? I think it's in Europe, but I can't remember. I'm, I'm torn between um, probably Denmark. I don't think it's Germany because I think they're professionally unhappy, or at least they always look unhappy, don't they, German people? Hmm. I'm going to go either Italians because they're really laid back, or perhaps Spain because they're really laid back, or Denmark because they're just wealthy. Uh, it's actually Denmark. Uh, Denmark is the happiest country in the world based on health, wealth uh, and the provision of education and sort of those, those things that feed into happiness. And the beer, of course. Uh, and the beer. Uh, the next two are Switzerland and Austria, followed by Iceland and the Bahamas. So come on, where are the most miserable places in the, in the world then? Well, we go down. The USA comes in at 23, which isn't bad. 
Um, Germany's at 35. The UK's at 41. So we're quite a miserable lot then. But this is out of 178 countries. But we do beat France, who are languishing at 62. So the most miserable countries, uh, the bottom three, are the Democratic Republic of Congo, Zimbabwe and Burundi. So these are... Not, you know, they're, they're war zones. There's a lot of problems there. There's corrupt governments. And what um, about Moss Side? Is that on the list? Uh, Moss Side has <laughs> not yet seceded from the UK, Chris. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. No, there, there was a, a, a sort of internal survey of happiness done in the last five years of the UK. And I think the, the most unhappy place in the UK was, was somewhere in Manchester, actually. Oh, it wouldn't surprise me. Of course, the happiest place in the UK is the Naked Scientist studio every week. Of course it is. Uh, now, this is something that Kat mentioned earlier, which is that when people go for operations, there's always a worry of, is the surgeon going to leave something inside me after they've stitched me up? Like their golf literally clubs stitched or something. You up. Um, well, more, more usually scalpels and swabs, but there might be a solution to this because p- published in this month's edition of the Archives of Surgery, Alex Macario, who's an anaesthetist at the uh, Stanford University in, in America, has tested uh, a way of finding out whether there's things left behind in you using exactly the same method that's used to thwart shoplifters. So you know when you're in the supermarket or in the, in the dress shop, in the clothes shop, and there are those you're tags... You're often in a dress shop, Chris. Well, I, I'm married, I have a wife, I'm obliged to attend occasionally... But um, you know, skirt, you, by the way. when you're going around the dress shop and you can see these tags on things, and when you walk out the door, they set the alarms off, as happens to you frequently, Kat, when you're trying to nick stuff. Yeah. Um, those things use what's called an RF tag. So there's an emitter by the door which sends a signal. When it interacts with one of those tags, it sends back a radio frequency which the machine is sensitive to, and that's what sounds the alarm. Well, these guys are testing exactly the same idea in terms of operative instruments so you'd have swabs which have these tiny tags in them you'd have scalpels with these tags attached and they did a simple trial and they got a surgeon who didn't know that something had been hidden inside a patient uh, obviously not before they stitched the patient up but uh, they put some things in the patient and then got someone to come along with with a wand that can detect these things and in less than three seconds they found any of the offending items when they were in there so what they're suggesting is if they can miniaturize these rf tags which are roughly the size at the moment of a small coin then they can get them down to a lot much smaller size so they're less intrusive and less uh, annoying for the surgeon trying to use small instruments, for example. They could actually make operations a great deal safer. But I should add that actually only one operation in every 10,000 is complicated by this kind of thing. So it's still a really low risk, but it's still uh, an important addition to safe operative practice. And will it save money? Uh, How much does it cost to, to salvage someone who's had a scalpel left in them? That's, uh, that's the question. Anyway... Uh, Some news that has come from um, researchers working together in Spain, Italy and Germany who've been studying microorganisms that live in the sea. Now, these are bacteria. And what they love to live on, which uh, I can't quite understand, is crude oil. So there's very few species that can actually live on crude oil because it's uh, very yucky, basically. And uh, the only source of energy in it is hydrocarbons, which most organisms can't break down. But there's these little bacteria called Alcanivorax borcomensis, got that right, Um, which just live on hydrocarbons. And now finally, these researchers have actually been studying the genetic code that makes up these bacteria and have worked out the genetic sequence of the uh, the oil-eating enzymes within them. Now, why is this important? Well, we have genetic engineering techniques that mean we can take the, the DNA that encodes for these enzymes and then stick it into other more easily to grow bacteria. And they could be used maybe to mop up oil spills by eating the oil in the future. And also this has benefit because um, these oil degrading bacteria live on something called a biofilm, which is a, a film of oil, usually found on the, uh, where oil and water meet. 
say, for example, on the surface of a sea in an oil slick. But also in our bodies, um, bacteria live in the interface between oil and water, for example, on our skin. And so if we can work out how bacteria are interacting with oil and water and maybe the enzymes that are responsible for it, then it could have a lot of benefits uh, into understanding how humans get infected with bacteria and maybe blocking that in the future. Thanks, Candid. So Chris and Kat, and we're the Naked Scientists, here with you uh, this week talking about the science of crowd control, the psychology of riots and football hooligans. We'll be talking about that very shortly. We'll also be talking about the dating game, if you're a mosquito with Gay Gibson. If you have any questions on that, then give us a call now, 08459 25 2000. Email chris at nakedscientist.com or send us a text on 07786 20 1960. Our teaser this week, and we have loads of prizes up for grabs. You, you can win almost just by entering. We want to know what's the substance that makes plants look green and enables them to soak up sunlight and carbon dioxide to make food and oxygen. We've heard from Olivia, who's in Western Coville, uh, Margaret in Corby, Sophie's in Ipswich and Deborah's in Ipswich and they all have all got the answer right so far. So it's anybody's game. What do you think the answer to that question is? Uh, just give us a call if you reckon you know. And remember, for kitchen science this evening, that's going to be fantastic. And we want to actually you to take part in this. You need an oven shelf, a couple of bits of string, yourself and a good sense of humour, a camera, because we want you to take a picture of yourself doing this, and, and the best picture is going to win a prize this evening, because I think this will be fantastic. And uh, and then you'll need an assistant uh, with a wooden spoon to, to make your oven shelf ring for you. That's coming up very, very shortly. Derek's out there at uh, Hinchingbrook School. But uh, since Kat was talking about bacteria that uh, people are interested in using to do interesting things, well, here's a discovery that could quite literally be worth its weight in gold, because a US researcher called Anna Louise Reisenbach from Portland State University, has found a class of extreme bacteria that can thrive in acid and near-boiling water. Now, these are so-called thermoacidophiles, and they've been found in hydrothermal vents on the ocean floor, and they might be able to help now above the ground because they could help in the extraction of precious metals from the debris that's left over in mines. At deep-sea hydrothermal vents, where the hydrothermal fluid, that very high-temperature hot fluid that comes from deep within the Earth's crust, that fluid which is pH of about 3.5. When it mixes with the cold seawater, it makes these beautiful chimneys, these chimney structures, these rocks, these porous rocks. And it's been predicted that in those chimneys, there um, are areas where there's low pH. And so you would expect that there would be microbes that would live at these low pH environments. And yet nobody has ever discovered a thermoacidophile, which is an organism that grows at low pH and at high temperature from deep sea vents. How did you actually recover these ones? Basically, we used a remotely operated vehicle called Jason 2, which is a little vehicle that's tethered to, to a ship, and we can send it down. Um, we have pilots that manipulate these hydraulic arms that then take samples for us at the, at the bottom of the ocean. And then once in the lab, we just ground up the rocks kept the rocks anaerobic because this organism's anaerobic, doesn't like oxygen, and we then inoculated bits of that rock into our acid media and then managed to get this little bug to grow. What do you think the applications of them might be? Because the mind boggles. You've got something which grows under extremely severe conditions. One of the applications would be in biomining where um, the mine tailings are often very acidic and there are organisms, thermoacidophiles, from actually from terrestrial hot springs that are used to remove some of the, the last bits of the precious metals 
So this organism could potentially also be used for such an application. And what are you going to do next? Will you be sending Jason back for some more samples or uh, will you be focusing your attention on the one bug you have got so far? I think we're going to focus for the moment on looking at the distribution of this organism at other deep sea vents. So we have some samples from many different deep sea vent environments and so we've been trying to isolate it from some of the other places around the world. So for example, the Indian Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the East Pacific Ocean. This one came from the Southwest Pacific. So we're trying to look at the distribution and see if its relatives are similar, if they share the same characteristics of being acid-loving, heat-loving, deep-sea vent microbes. That's Anna-Louise Reisenbach talking to me in this week's Nature podcast. And we've had an email here from Mike, who, uh, not sure where he is. Oh, Rhode Island, here he is. And um, he points out that life on Earth gets its energy either directly or indirectly from the sun. But there are all these deep-sea animals, uh, organisms, for example, that we've just heard about, that live off the energy from sulphides that pour out of the deep-sea vents, and they don't receive any energy from the sun. Um, he mentions the Pompeii worm. Not sure what that one looks like. Um, but is it plausible for a planet to have enough geothermal activity like this to sustain a robust ecosystem without receiving any energy from a star? What do we think? Well, people were quite interested in a number of moons around other planets. For instance, uh, originally people were thinking about Titan uh, because it has a rich supply of organic molecules and because it's in orbit around a very large planet, Saturn, which has a very strong uh, gravitational field, which in the case of some moons is sufficient to stretch and compress moons. I think Europa is an example of this. Um, obviously that's around another planet. But the, the strong compression and expansion of the planet caused by gravity creates a lot of heat and people think this might be sufficient to cause water to exist in a liquid form on those on those worlds and therefore they might be a possible spawning ground for new life. The thing about the hydrothermal vents on Earth is that the life that you find there, in the same way that Anne-Louise uh, uh, Anne Reisenbach was just saying there, is that they've all evolved originally from bacteria which lived on and depended on the sun's energy and then they made their way and became specialised for ocean floor dwelling. They didn't evolve there as a new form of life. So it's just very slightly different, I suppose. I don't think it's not plausible, though. I, I think it's perfectly plausible that something could evolve to, to live on energy that way. I suppose by so, but the ones we have here at the moment do depend on processes and resources that are supplied to the planet by the sun in order to survive. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Now, here's the moment you've all been waiting for. Time to head over to Hinchingbrook School to join Derek and Dave, who are with their assistants, Matt and Nick, and an oven shelf. Derek, what you up to? Hello, welcome to Hinchingbrook School, where we've come today to do some, uh, some more fantastic science experiments with uh, some of the guys who are here at the school. And with me, of course, is Dave, fellow naked scientist, who's set up the experiment today. So, Dave, quickly, what is it we're going to be doing? We're going to be building a gong out of an oven shelf. We're going to be building a gong out of an oven shelf. Sounds brilliant. OK, and also we've got two volunteers who've come from Hinchingbrook School today. So could you just tell me your names and what years you're in, please? Um, I'm Matt. I'm in Year 12. I'm Nick, and I'm also in Year 12. OK, brilliant. And uh, guys, do you do science? Are you into science? Um, yeah, I study biology, chemistry and physics. OK, he's hardcore. Can you equal that, Nick? Um, not really, just physics for me. Uh, but I like it 
OK, but we reckon with knowledge of physics... Glad he like it. Uh, we reckon with knowledge of physics you'll still be able to kind of maybe even explain this experiment for us. So uh, let's hope you can do that. OK, then. So, you at home, you definitely can do this experiment, and I trust you there's some amazing, amazing stuff for you to hear if you do do this experiment yourselves at home. So it's going to be great. What you need is an oven shelf, right? So basically one of those kind of metal shells out of your oven. You also need two bits of string, each of which are about a metre long. And finally, you need some kind of blunt implement for bashing the oven shelf with. So a wooden spoon or a metal spoon, something like that is absolutely fine. OK, and Dave, what are we going to do with these things? How do we set it up? It's really simple, Derek. All you do is you take your oven shelf, you tie a piece, one piece of string to each end of one side of it, you then wind the other end of the two pieces of string around your fingers, stick your fingers in your ears and get someone to hit the oven shelf. OK, and tell us what you hear. So there you go, it's that easy. So you've got to basically take the oven shelf, you've got to tie um, a piece of string to one corner, tie another piece of string to the, the corner next to that, so it's kind of hanging a bit like a, a picture on your wall or something, but, but there are two separate pieces of string here. And then you've got to wind the other ends of those bits of string around an index finger, uh, so that's two index fingers wound up, and then stick those fingers in your ears and get someone to bash it and tell us what you hear. And, of course, we've got Matt and Nick, who here at Hinchingbrook School are going to be doing this for us very, very shortly. So what do you think you're going to hear, Matt, when, when you do that? Um, probably a very loud noise. OK. Uh, and Nick, I mean, he says very loud noise. Any more detail than that? What do you um, think you might hear? I'm thinking maybe a ringing or a buzzing. All right, OK. Well, we'll find out. That could be right. It may not be right, but we will find out later on. So what we'd like you at home to do is to try this as well. And if you can do it and get the right result to us, then you can win a prize. So the number for you to call is 08459 25 And the email is chris at thenakedscientist.com. So please do get in touch with us as soon as you have bashed that oven shelf. OK, then. It's uh, back to the studio now, but we'll be back later on the show with the answer and uh, what's going on as well from Dave. So uh, it's back to you until then. Thanks, Derek. And if you can send us a picture of yourself doing that, then uh, just email it in to chris at thenakedscientist.com and uh, there's going to be a prize for the best picture. And in fact, the first person through with the best uh, picture and the best observation as to exactly what happens. You will not fail to be impressed if you try this. It's Chris and Kat here on The Naked Scientist, going to be talking very, very shortly to Clifford Stott about riot control. The Naked Scientists, supported by The Wellcome Trust. Clifford, thanks for, for coming in and talking to us about this. Um, could you just give us a sort of gentle introduction to your work? A gentle introduction? I'm not sure if that's easy. Um, I suppose, in a sense, what, what um, I've been working on with, with John as well, that you've got on today, is, a, is a th basically a scientific model, a theoretical model, of what makes collective behaviour in crowd events possible from a psychological point of view, so the psychology of crowd behaviour. And from that theoretical model, from that science, we've been able to, to start asking very uh, important, difficult, but practically important questions about uh, the way we manage crowds out in society, particularly at these critical times where we get violence in political demonstrations, in football crowds, uh, and, uh, and various other events like that. And you went out and, and joined in the World Cup, but not uh, to watch the football, actually to watch the people. Yes, I mean it's it's one of the difficulties I have. I'm always I'm always working. I can't switch off. So if I go to a football match, I spend most of my time looking at the crowd, not the game. But uh, I'm starting to, to to come to terms with that. But basically, yes, we 
I, I go along, I take a team of researchers with me, and we, we spend lots of time in crowd events just basically making systematic observations, looking at events. And in particular, we focus on, on interactions, and, the, and the, the particularly important interactions that we look at are between uh, the police and, and football fans because what we found is, is that those interactions are critically important in determining how people behave in, in, in a crowd event, particularly uh, as this relates to the emergence of, of widespread rioting. So what do you do? Do you look for hot spots in the crowd where you think trouble's about to break out and then watch that sort of dynamic going on? Or do you just chance it and hope that some trouble will break out near you? In which case, I don't want to come to a football match with you. Um, well, we, we're pretty good at our job, so we do end up, um, you know, be, quite often being in the right place at the right time. But yes, it, it's particularly opportunistic, uh, and in part that's why we study football crowds because we always know where football crowds are going to be. We know that there's a high likelihood of of problems around uh, football match. Uh, football matches, we know that the police are almost invariantly going to be there. So it makes that opportunistic kind of approach to studying crowds a lot more uh, fruitful because we, we, we tend to uh, to see a lot more going on in, in crowd events in the context of football. And of course, from that, for, we, we can learn so much more uh, about how crowds work. So what do you think it is? What's the recipe that turns a, a crowd of people that are there just to support something they view as fun, a football match, into something in which they become quite aggressive and, and often murderous? Uh, strong. Uh, a bit like your opinion about Germans there, I think. Um, well, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about how crowds work. Um, but one of the things, I think, to put it as simply as possible, that, that we've begun to understand is that, that crowd behaviour is, is really an outcome of particular forms of interaction. That the, the way groups interact during a crowd event, and one must remember that the police are a group uh, present uh, during most of the crowd events, the way groups interact with one another has a fantastic impact on, on, on how crowds behave and on their psychology. In particular, in relationship to people's senses of what's right and proper behaviour, and also what, what's possible what it's possible for people to do uh, collectively and that, that dynamic of, of what we call legitimacy and power um, it really functions to to make particular forms of collective behavior possible so what we find is that the where the police act against the crowd in ways that crowd members see as wrong um, and when the police are particularly indiscriminate in their treatment of crowd members, those are the kinds of conditions where, where riots tend to develop. So, for example, if they see a police beating up a woman or, or something like that or apparently picking on someone when they shouldn't be... Yes, exactly. It's that, that kind of sense of um, the, the police are doing something wrong. One must remember here that what we're talking about is a psychological dynamic. It doesn't really matter whether the police are actually doing that or not. What matters is that there's this emergent perception of that in the crowd. And it's really that, that subjectivity that, that drives collective action. So where people feel that the, that the police are doing something wrong, sort that of, tends to make them feel as though acting against the police is right. So sort of a sense of group injustice about it. Exactly. Yeah. And what what causes a football riot to kick off, or or any sort of big event like this? What what nucleates it? Well, it's very very complex. I mean, you know, if we had an answer to that question right now, I don't think I'd have a job. But um, what, what what we're looking at is to try and 
try and change people's views about why crowd violence happens in the context of football. Overwhelmingly, people have got an opinion about this, and that opinion is generally that, that football violence is caused by football hooligans. But what we're beginning to find is that that's not really a very good w- way of looking scientifically at the problem. Of course, science is all about bringing to bear uh, theoretical knowledge and empirical data on, on a particular issue. And, and, and what we find is, is that this whole idea of hooliganism is completely useless when it comes to understanding the, the, these riots. Are the police elsewhere in the world doing it any better than we are here? There's good practice uh, and bad practice all over the world. Uh, I think that one of the... What, what, what we do is to, is to look at the dynamics of social conflict. I think, to be perfectly honest with you, that the, the kinds of dynamics that we expose in our study of football violence have a great deal of applicability and I think that uh, they, they can make sense of uh, the escalation of violence, for example, in the Lebanon at the moment. So these are, I think, general processes of the psychology and, and, and social dynamics of social conflict. And... Uh, you know, but basically, I think there's a, there's a great deal of generality there about how we understand it. Thanks, Clifford. Clifford Stott from the University of Liverpool. He's here for the rest of the programme, and if you'd like to ask him any questions, you can call now, Chris and Cat on The Naked Scientist, 08459 25000. Send me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com, or a text on 07786 201960. Don't forget our teaser this week, which is that we want to know what's the substance in plants that makes them look green and it enables them to soak up the energy from the sun and mop up carbon dioxide to produce oxygen and food. If you think you know the answer, could be some great prizes in it for you. We've heard so far from Norman in Hunstanton. Uh, he's definitely on the right lines. We've heard from Pat in Kent, Norma in West Runton, Shirley in Deering and Rowena in Essex. They're all doing very well, as is Steve who texted in from London. Those are all going in the hat, so it's everybody's game right now if you want to have a go at that one. Uh, right, Cat. We're now going to head across the pond for this week's science update with Chelsea Wilde and Bob Hershon to find out, amongst other things, a computer programme designed to counsel teenagers. This week for the Naked Scientists, we'll talk about an indigenous South American language that places the past ahead of people and the future behind them. But first, or last, or... Well, now, Chelsea tells us about a new computer program that speaks the language of teenage girls. The program guides girls as they reflect on emotional events, much like a therapist would. Its developer is MIT graduate student Chandra Daly. The idea is not to replace a therapist, but the idea is that, you know, sometimes you can't reach a therapist. Could the system sort of help in the meantime, or could it help to support a counselor in their efforts rather than replace them? When girls use the program, they first write and illustrate a real story from their own lives. Then the program uses a technology called common sense reasoning to guess how the girls feel about the story. Finally, the girls respond to the program by agreeing or disagreeing with the guests and weighing the strength of their emotions. Daly says she tested this program with a small group of girls over several weeks. Compared to a control group, the girls who used the program started being more emotionally expressive in their writing. If in their first story they said uh, A happened, B happened, C happened, by their last story they were saying A happened and it made me feel like this. She says this program could have a place in schools because students' emotional problems often get in the way of learning. She also plans to make the program available to all girls via the web. Thanks, Chelsea. The indigenous Aymara people of South America have no future ahead of them. That's because unlike any other known culture, they refer to the future being behind them and the past ahead. This according to Rafael Nunez, a cognitive scientist at the University of California at San Diego. 
He says this metaphorical reversal goes beyond figures of speech to gestures and body language, suggesting the Aymara have an entirely different concept of time. So it's kind of a deeper understanding of, of the flexibility and the potentials of the human body and brain to provide the basis for abstraction. He adds that Aymara culture and language emphasize the eyewitness point of view, which may explain why they visualize their past experiences right before their eyes and the future, which they haven't seen, behind them. Thanks, Bob. Next time we'll learn about how pregnancy sickness might actually have some evolutionary reason for existing. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thanks, Bob. So there you go. You've got your whole future uh, behind you. Apparently. Anyway, next coming up, we're going to find out how people are getting on with their kitchen science. It's not too late to email in chris at nakedscientist.com or get calling in 08459 25 2000. We've heard from Daniel in Kent. He's had a go at our experiments. And just in case you've just tuned in, you get an oven shelf, put two bits of string, one on each corner, wrap the two bits of string around your fingers and shove them in your ears. And then you get someone friendly to get a nice wooden spoon or something like that and give the oven shelf a little bit of a whack for you. What does it sound like? Daniel was well impressed and you will be too if you have a go. First person to send us a photograph of themselves actually doing it, just get your camera phone out or a digital camera, take a photo and email it in chris at nakedscientist.com. We'll give you a prize. Get going now. 08459 25 2000 if you have any questions about our other topics this evening, which is what turns a crowd into a riot? How do we evacuate people from dangerous situations most safely? And also, how mosquitoes find the other mosquitoes they want to mate with? Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. And now we're going to go and talk to John Drury, who's at the University of Essex. Sussex. Uh, Sussex. Sorry. <laughs> My mistake. Okay. Um, it is late. Uh, we're going to talk about crowds and crowd control. So mm. anyone who was in um, London around about this time last year uh, was shocked to the core by the bombings. And how do you start evacuating people from a situation like that? Um, well, I think I want to step back, first of all, and... and uh question the the, uh, the concept of crowd control because there's a kind of hidden assumption there that the crowd is a problem and uh, it's down to the authorities to deal with the, the problems of the crowd and the problems of the crowd are understood in terms of uh, its uh, reduced intelligence its uh, irrationality uh, its over emotion uh, over emotional behavior uh, its inability to control itself and susceptibility to uncritical social influence. Now, these ideas go back over 100 years when uh, crowd science first emerged, and you see them in, uh, uh, in, in uh, the work of the, in the uh, ideas of the police, which Clifford's been talking about, and also in many uh, procedures for evacuating crowds. So how, how instead should we look at crowds? Well the, well, the first thing to point out is it's in, it's in common sense um, language, common sense discourse, if you like, the notion of panic, that when there's an emergency, people will panic. And when we say panic, what we mean is people will overreact, uh, they will become selfish, competitive, individualised, and ultimately uh, ineffective in their attempts to escape as they all get in each other's way. But and, Sorry? Sorry, and then, so how how should we then get people out of situations like that in the most calm way possible? Is there any way to stop people panicking? Well, well, the the point I'm trying to make is that panic is actually a myth because uh, 50 years of research on actual 
disasters and emergencies have found no evidence at all of panic behaviour. What is more common is people uh, obviously feeling fear, but evacuating in a relatively orderly uh, way. Um, helping each other is very common. Uh, deaths are often due not so much to people panicking, but to people often uh, trying to stay behind and stay with those they want to help to get out because they're often in small groups of people and they're trying to help those less able than themselves. So, That's, so people don't run around like headless chickens, this, as this you might myth. imagine. This is a myth. I mean, everybody commented after um, after the bombings last year. It was uh, full of, in, in all the accounts, how calm everybody was, how much helping there was, and it was characterised in terms of something about London, something about British identity or London identity. We all do this, but in fact. It's a universal phenomenon. Help and coordination, cooperation is a universal phenomenon in emergencies. It's interesting, John, because um, we've had a call from John in Colchester and he's wondering if things like pheromones or chemicals could be used to control riots and, and crowds. And I know that the, 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 in the United States, a lot of research has been sunk into things like microwave guns that can blast plasma at people and give them a little bit of pain if they step into the beam of it, which is a good way of, of pushing people into submission, isn't it? And also there was a group in Washington, I think it was Washington, that were working on the world's worst smell. So you would unleash this smell on people and it quite literally reduces you to a, a sort of quivering heap on the ground, trying to hold down the contents of your stomach because it's so unpleasant. Mm. Well, this goes back to my, my, my earlier point. Where crowd science uh, arose from was the perception by uh, uh, those in power that the crowd is a problem. So how do we deal with the problem of the crowd? Turn it round, the crowd is actually the solution. Social change comes about through crowds. Progressive social change comes about through crowds. The most um, uh, uplifting, uh, the most constructive uh, and the most empowering and inspiring uh, events in, in terms of emergencies are due to processes within the crowd itself. There's a concept called resilience used by the government, used by sociologists looking at disasters. What does that refer to? It refers to a natural uh, quality of people to respond in a constructive and humane way and to network and to coordinate uh, through their own natural resources. I was uh, reading the paper this morning and I've, a classic problem in sort of large groups of people trying to do stuff is trying to get on an aeroplane and uh, there's all various models that researchers are looking at to try and work out the best way to put people on a plane mm. and they were saying that that people are, you know, people do just get in each other's way in that mm, situation. Mm. You should put people into the window seats first. Mm. I mean, where you have a, a lot of people trying to get somewhere at mm. once, is is there a better way we could be doing this? Mm. Um, I haven't really got a solution to that that uh, that, that question, but I'll, I'll give you a comparison which sheds some light on the on on, on the issue and, and, and the, the point I'm making and the point you're making. Think of a, a crowd of commuters on, say, the Central Line and how they behave and how the, how they how they feel. They are packed close together. They feel uncomfortable. They don't meet each other's eyes. They find physical proximity unpleasant. Uh, they are a physical crowd. They are crowded together, but they don't see themselves or understand themselves as part of a whole. Take the same situation, yet this crowd is a crowd of football supporters who've just seen their team uh, have a, a, a victory in, say, the FA Cup final. They are together. They are singing together. They, physical, physical contact, physical proximity there is an enjoyable thing. So there's something about being a psychological crowd, i.e. seeing yourself as a crowd, which makes people put others first, be self-sacrificial, uh, coordinate, cooperate, communicate, whereas in, the, in a physical crowd, the crowd of individuals, individual consumers who are competing for space as individuals on a plane, in a shopping centre, uh, 
The lack of unity stems from the lack of shared identity because those people have no shared interest. John, thank you very much for joining us. Hang around in case anyone wants to ask any questions. That's John Drury from the University of Sussex. If you'd like to join us on The Naked Scientist and ask any questions about what we were discussing, football hooliganism, riots, riot control, crowds, and the safest way to get people out of danger, 08459 25 2000. Send us a text 07786 or email chris at nakedscientist.com. Now, people are loving our kitchen science this evening. Uh, Catherine in Deeping St. James and... Um, Rose in Essex and Hedra in Cambridge uh, have all had a go in our other quiz uh, and they've all got the answer right. And June and her husband have just tried kitchen science and they, they say it's like a miniature Big Ben going off inside your head. Uh, so they obviously got stuck into that. And Hayden in Thetford has tried it and said it's like a big drum going off inside your head. So if you would like to have a go, get your oven shelf two bits of string on each corner, wrap them around your index fingers, stuff them in your ears and get someone to hit it with a spoon. What's going to happen and why? Can you explain why why you're hearing these things? If you reckon you know the answer, get calling now 08459 25 2000. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. It is the Naked Scientists, Chris and Kat, and our guest in the studio as well this week to talk about something slightly different than crowd control is Gay Gibson from the University of Greenwich. Hi, Gay. Hi. Now, you work on mosquitoes. Yeah. And you published right. a paper the other day, which really sort of everyone was buzzing about, I suppose you could say, <laughs> about how they tell male from female, because I'd, I'd never really considered that that would be a problem. Right. Well, it's not so far off the topic that the other um, people have been talking about, because when mosquitoes mate they generally get together in a crowd of males all gather at the same place in the same time a bit like a, a mosquito nightclub basically that's right yeah, but wh- why yeah. do they do that why would you get all the males together well the males really have nothing else to do in life except hang around it's <laughs> <laughs> much like humans then <laughs> it's the females that go around biting and uh, sucking blood and producing baby mosquitoes but the males really have nothing else to do because the males just drink sort of sugary solution don't they that's right they don't yeah, need because they don't f- i mean the reason females drink the blood is, is because it's rich in protein yeah and they need that protein to produce the eggs for the next generation so you've got a big flock of males buzzing about yeah how, how does an interaction between a male and a female mosquito happen then? Well, the first problem is all these males <clears throat> are swirling about each other and they've got to not waste too much time chasing each other because that would lead to nothing. And that's really where the problem started for me. I tried to work out how exactly do they save their energy for actually chasing the right female when she comes along. And it's taken a sort of long and hard think about things, but the m- mosquitoes have very specialised antennae and the males have very elaborate ones, and we already knew something about this, that if you hum at a male, anybody out there can do this. You can find these clouds of mosquitoes over bushes that around, you know, sunset, you see clouds of gnats, we would call them, because they don't bite you, they're just male mosquitoes and slightly other related insects. If you hum at them, sort of... Excellent impression, wasn't it? Well, this whole cloud of mosquitoes will come right into your face. So don't sing, because they'll go right in your mouth if you try that. Anyway, those males are coming at your face because they think you might be a female. So the males come zooming towards a female. How are they sensing that? It's their vibration of the wing beats of an actual female or the vibration of your hum. It stimulates their antenna, and then that signal goes to the mosquito's brain, and it transforms that into a change in its wing beats 
moving towards the sound it heard. So could you use that as a way of baiting a trap for mosquitoes then? Could you have something that releases a, a rather aggravating sound, admittedly, but could you then suck all the males in so there's nothing to make with the females and the population will plummet? Yeah, this is exactly the idea that had come to several scientists a few decades ago. And you can build huge loudspeakers and you can pull in millions of males that way. The trouble is it doesn't take many males left behind to do the job for the rest of the a few females. lucky males that are deaf <laughs> exactly at the time, at the time. Um, but but what about the females do they not respond in the same way well no one really knew what kind of behavior there was with females because if you play a sound to them they don't seem to change the way they fly they just go about their business but it bothered me because we hadn't really investigated females very very deeply so i went to a colleague of mine i'd graduate of University of Sussex myself so I went back to my old tutor and said hang on you know about sound he works with bats and so forth and do you think it's possible that these two could hear each other and we did a secret a series of experiments to try and demonstrate what kind of or, or investigate what kind of behavior the females might have and indeed we uncovered a lovely duet so do you want, you've given me the, the samples the sound samples yes. now anyone who is mosquito phobic or doesn't like the sound of things that remotely <laughs> resemble dental drills, then you might want to cover your ears very slightly when these we play this. Okay, talk us through this and what, what these recordings are, and, and we'll play them. Okay, well, uh, the first thing to say would be, let's listen to what two males would sound like. So in this cloud of swarming males, you've got two males near each other. They have to be pretty close together, sort of 10 centimetres apart. Now, that's what we did in our experiment. We held on, tethered two mosquitoes near each other, and we let them listen to each other and recorded what the effect was. So this is what it sounded like when you get two males talking to each other. So what you'll get is the first one, and then you'll hear the other one come in subsequently, we'll and what they're in. listening for is the actual beating right, of the wings. they're having a little conversation and see what that sounds like. Okay, here we go. That's the first male. The second comes in. Now, if that doesn't grate on your ears, nothing does. <laughs> okay, I think that's enough of that. So, so basically, there's just two lots of wings flapping away there. That's right. There's a really discordant sound. I mean, that's just not got anything attractive about it. Now, if you were to do something else this time, let's start off with a male, and then a female comes along, and let's see what that sounds like. Here's the male. Here comes a female, a little all over the place. Isn't that sweet? So oh, they get together. <laughs> so, so actually they synchronise their wing beats. They do. They move towards each other. It was a little hard unless we listened to it over again more carefully. But they don't. They both move a little bit towards each other and they overshoot and it goes a little all over the place. But give them enough time, they get right into the same register. And, and so what, by synchronising their wing beats, one's telling the other one I'm male, the other one's saying the other one I'm female. That's right. And then they know that they That's should right. pair off. Yep. So does then vision take over? So one, then they get close enough they can see each other and then they know who they're dealing with? Well, their vision's their not at out. all good enough for that. They've got very poor um, resolution in terms of vision. But what I mentioned earlier is that males move towards that source of sound. And when their wing beats are flapping about the same speed to make the same sound they just kind of get in gear and, and the male just catches up and grabs the female and then contact senses take over then now can you just tell us because people probably don't appreciate quite how hard that work is to do to record yeah. two individual mosquitoes in an apparatus how, how did you do that well, as I say, you, we needed a lot of the the, um, the fine engineering. Um, the University of Sussex Neurobiology Department there has uh, really the kind of recording equipment, tiny little microphones that just pick up the sound near where the wing beats are. And then 
you simply, well, my side of it is easy, a little drop of beeswax on the back of each mosquito. and a little Sounds stick. easy, but, you know, a mosquito, uh, how big is that? You're lassoing mosquitoes, mm-hmm. yes, basically. Yes, yes, indeed. Wow. So the obvious spin-off of this, as we've, as we've already explored, is it, it's possible to lure mosquitoes into traps and things using this. But does this add any additional details that um, that we might be able to exploit in, in control of diseases like malaria and things like that? Well, I, I think I might start with one, which is there's, there's a kind of misconception that you can affect female behaviour with a sound. There are these buzzers, repellent buzzers, that are meant to repel female mosquitoes. And uh, we've tested them scientifically, and there really isn't much evidence that these work. It's kind of like the upside-down version of the story. Males are attracted to females, but females aren't repelled or they don't really move about. So that's one kind of product which is slightly misguided in its premise. But the more important thing that I was trying to understand was really how these mosquitoes come can establish themselves in, in such a... Um, environment where there are very few of them left, say, at the end of a season, but they can find each other so efficiently. I wouldn't say there's a good practical outcome immediately to do with the sound and mating behaviour, but of course that's only one part of my investigations of mosquito behaviour, and those are far more applied. It's Gay Gibson from the Natural Resources Institute at the University of Greenwich. If you have any questions for us, Chris and Kat here at The Naked Scientists, 08459 25 2000, text 07786 20 or email chris at nakedscientists.com. And uh, our teaser this evening, don't forget, uh, what's the substance that makes plants look green and uh, is the way in which they capture the energy of sunlight and turn it into food and oxygen for us to breathe? What is that stuff you could win yourself a prize? Kat? Um, we've actually had an email in here from Mauro Ferreira, who's in Dublin in Ireland. Um, he says, loves the show, by the way, just voted for us in the podcast awards. Can people vote for us in podcast awards, Chris? Is that up I there wish now? they would, because we've actually, The Naked Scientist has been shortlisted in the top five uh, in the world, in fact, for science podcasts. We're one of the nominated podcasts, and you can help us to win if you go to podcastawards.com and give us a vote if you like our show. Laying the facts bare, Ooh. The Naked Scientists. Clifford, I've got a quick question here which has been uh, sent in, and it's again from Mauro Ferreira, who's in Dublin in Ireland. And he says, it's been suggested the police can trigger the public's reaction by being heavy-handed. We know the police tend to be more heavy-handed towards some more aggressive supporters, such as the English. Is this a hen and egg problem? Can you comment on this, please? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, very much kind of uh, the kind of process that we focus in on. We we call it a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's the expectation that a large crowd of uh, supporters is going to pose a problem and then what you do is you throw resources at it because you feel that you need to control it. And the idea, again, as John pointed out, is is very Le Bonian, very uh, traditional, this idea of the crowd as irrational, it's dangerous, it needs to be controlled. So resources are, are thrown at it. Expectation is violence is, is going to be there. So officers are stressed, they're wearing protective equipment, they're much more likely to lash out. And then if a small incident occurs in that crowd, then what we see is is this what people call heavy-handed reaction, but basically large numbers of police officers uh, driving forcefully into the crowd. And that crowd contains people that haven't done anything wrong, that haven't been involved in violence and certainly didn't intend to be involved in violence. And then they find themselves being basically physically assaulted and think, well, hang on a minute, I haven't done anything wrong here. Why are you treating me like that? And that draws that person and those people in the crowd towards violence when they had no intention prior to police intervention of engaging in violence. Thank you for answering that question. Let's just uh, have a quick chat to John, who is with June. Hi, John. Hello. We've got got to talk about this in about 15 seconds, but what did you find in Kitchen Science? 
What I found is it sounded just like the chime of, say, Big Ben, for example. Going off inside your head. It, that's correct. <laughs> well, shall we find out if you're right? Let's go back. Stay on the line, John. Let's go back to... Derek and Dave here at Hinchingbrook School with Matt and Nick. Derek, what's the answer? Hello there. Welcome back to Hinchingbrook School. And uh, we've got an oven shelf hanging from uh, two bits of string and it's all ready with uh, Matt and Nick of Hinchingbrook School to kind of tell us the result of the experiment that we've been setting up. So, Dave, who's with me, if you could uh, tell these guys what to do. Well, first of all, should we just listen to the oven shelf normally? So if Nick could just hit the oven shelf and we can listen to it. OK, so Nick's actually armed with, with kind of a, a pen, which he's going to use as a beater to hit it with. And uh, Matt is ready holding the shelf, but he's not sticking his fingers in his ears yet. So go for it, Nick. OK, then. So, Matt, what does that sound like? Uh, just like a ringing sort of sound. Right. Now, stick those fingers in your ears. Oh, he's very nervous. Like he doesn't know what's going to happen. Right. Now, then, we want you to tell us, Matt, as soon as uh, Nick starts hitting this thing, what it sounds like. Here we go. Oh, it's a much lower ringing sound. OK, then. Now, we actually, Nick, we, don't, we want you not just to hit it once, all right? That was obviously a good effort, but we want you to give him a, a bit of a concert here, OK? If you okay. could kind of play this thing like a, you're a professional xylophone player, right? So put your fingers back in your ears, Matt. Right, here we go. That, that sort of, thank you, Nick. How do you like your performance? Uh, equal to Mozart. Yeah, absolutely. So and what, how did it sound, Matt, <laughs> yeah. listening to that? Well, it's a very low ringing sound and... Yeah, <laughs> And can you think of a musical instrument that it sounded like? Well, we say it sounds like a gong, personally. Now, <laughs> maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Anyway, it's much, much lower, and it really doesn't sound like the oven shelf used to sound at all. Now, we are aware, of course, that you at home, listening, have not actually been able to hear what Matt was hearing. If you did this experiment at home, then you have heard it, and I very much hope you have done it. But if not, then we have actually set up a little setup here so that you can hear what's going on. We've actually wrapped up a microphone in the string, and we're just going to give it a little hit, and then you will be able to hear what it sounds like. Right then, so there you go. That is what it sounds like, and it does sound absolutely fabulous. So there we go. Dave, what we want to know, of course, is what is going on here. Why are we hearing a much lower pitch sound when we've kind of got this set up? Well, first of all, we've got to understand what sound is. Now, the way you hear me talking um, is that my voice box vibrates, which makes the air vibrate. And what you actually hear is your ear vibrating. Now, what the sound is travelling through and what kind of sound it is can affect how much energy gets to your ear, so how loud it feels. OK, so when we're listening to you, we're hearing the sound travel through air, right? Yes. So an air is really sloppy. It's not, it's not really fluid and it's not very stiff. So if, especially if you move something slowly through it, it's very hard to get much energy into it. This is why if you want to have a deep bass speaker, it's got to be absolutely enormous to get the energy into the air. You've got to have a huge, thing, huge board moving backwards and forwards. Now, the higher the frequency, the faster you're wobbling backwards and forwards, the stiffer the air feels. It's a bit like water. If you move your hand through it slowly, it feels really fluid. But if you slap your hand down really hard on it or belly flop, it hurts like hell because it feels much more rigid. OK, so you, you've talked about kind of moving your hand faster and so on. So how does that relate to sound? Well, the higher the pitch, the faster the vibrations. So the, the high pitches can move from the oven shelf to your ears really well normally. But because the oven shelf is quite small, the low pitches can't move very well. So all you can hear when you just hit it is the high pitches. Now, if you put something quite stiff, like a string, if you've got a complete connection from the shelf through the string to your ears, the string is quite stiff. So the, the, even the low vibrations can get through the string. So you can hear the low vibrations, which are always there, but now you can actually hear them. 
So really then, the string is just a much better transmitter of, of the low vibrations and the low frequencies, and that's why we hear a much deeper sound. And, uh, and in fact, the oven shelf, when we hit it and when we just listen to it through air, it's still producing those low vibrations, but it's just that we, we, we can't actually hear them through the air. Yeah, they're very, very quiet. You can't hear them. Okay, well, thanks for that explanation, Dave. And uh, I think Matt and Nick, you, you both, did, did that make sense to you? Yes, perfect sense. Okay, then. And Nick actually was doing the banging of the oven shelf earlier, so didn't get to hear it. So finally, we're just going to give Nick a chance to hear what it sounds like and commentate on it. So Matt's going to be doing his kind of xylophone Mozart job, and uh, Nick's going to be listening. So let's go for it, guys. Tell us what it sounds like, Nick. Beautiful. <laughs> Fantastic. So there you go. If you've not heard this beautiful sound at home yet, then please do get out your oven shelf and get some string on it and uh, see what you hear with your fingers stuck in your ears. Fantastic. Thank you very much to you guys, Matt and Nick from Hinchingbrook School, and also to Dave for doing all the explanations and setting it all up. And that's all for this week, and we'll be back next time with more Kitchen Science. So until then, it's goodbye. Thanks, Derek and Dave, and your lovely assistants, Matt and Nick. So how was that then? Is that what you found, John? I did. I, I, it sounded like the, the wife struck the oven... Um, grill a few times in different places just like a, a sort of big bend chime Beauty, a beautiful melody anyway you've won a book The, uh, the Hidden Rules of English Behaviour Watching the English by Kate Fox so well done thanks thank you very much John and June in their kitchen for taking part and uh, our winner this evening for the What is the Green Stuff in Plants that's Catherine in Deeping St James, James it was of course chlorophyll very quick question for you now Gay uh, this is from John in Peterborough if you were drunk would the alcohol in your blood affect the mosquito Oh dear, difficult to answer that one, but I suspect she just wouldn't fly straight home. <laughs> wouldn't be able to sort of <laughs> attract a male because the wing beats would be all over the place. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Well, that's it for this week, and thank you to everyone for giving up your time and listening to us. It's been great to have your company. And also thank you to our studio guests this week, Gay Gibson from the University of Greenwich, Clifford Stott from the University of Liverpool, and John Drury from the University of Sussex. Next week, it's our last show before we go off for three weeks on our summer holiday, which uh, we do incidentally need very much. But we'll be celebrating the end of the series with a special Naked Science question and answer show, which means an hour of just your questions. So if you'd like to send them to me now, just email chris at nakedscientist.com or visit our website, nakedscientist.com, and under the Contact Us section, there's a feedback form. You can just type in your questions there and have them sent over to me. Now, I've got one final favour to ask you today, which is we have been nominated for this year's podcast awards in the science and technology section, and it's gone to a vote, which means that the only way we can win this thing is by getting more votes than the other four contenders. So if you think we deserve it and you enjoy listening to The Naked Scientist, then please do us the biggest favour we could ask you, which is take a trip to podcastawards.com and register a vote for The Naked Scientist. You can vote actually every single day if you want to, and we'd be grateful for as much support as you can give us. In the meantime, thanks once again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.